You may be seated. If you would bow with me in prayer and then we're going to open God's word together and look at uh, Acts and then chapter 17. But let's pray first. Lord, we thank you uh, for this day. We thank you for this time that we have together together. We thank you that we can come into this place and uh, encourage one another, that we can sing your praises, that we can read your word and, and in doing so hear directly from you. We thank you that we have this time of getting to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. And just uh, we pray that as we do these things that you've called us to do, uh, that we would be greatly encouraged, but more importantly, that you would be glorified, that we would make much of your name, that we would lift you high today as we do those things. Uh, We confess that as we open your word, that in and of ourselves we are lost, that we desperately need you. We need you to teach us. We need you to uh, convict our heart, to point us more fully to Jesus, to show us the things uh, of the way that you have made us and the way that we are and the way that you uh, call us to love and follow you. And so we just pray that you would do that through the Holy Spirit today, that you would show us uh, just so clearly uh, how much you love us and what it means for us. And we just pray that you would be lifted up. Uh, We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Uh, I was thinking back, uh, listen, I listened to a lot of music as I write a lot of times I've learned sermons I have to listen to music without words or it just kind of gets <laughs> it takes me off into different places but uh, I was listening to a couple different songs and there was a song that came up this week uh, that I hadn't listened to in a while but as I was thinking about what we're going to talk about in Acts it seemed uh, kind of appropriate as I was thinking about it and it was a song that came out uh, I'm starting to feel old I realized that it came out before my oldest son Asher was born so it was at least 12 or 13 years ago and it was one of my favorite from this album that came out and it was called uh, the song was called Less Than You, uh, Less Than You Think is the name of it. And I liked the song, just the, the instrumentation and the way the song builds. And it starts very stark, kind of piano and adds some elements. And then it kind of builds to this crescendo. And part of the words as it gets to the end, uh, the singer sings, your spine starts to shine and you shiver at your soul. A fist so clear and climbing punches a hole in the sky and you can see for yourself If you don't believe me, there's so much less to this than you think. And I always love the song except for one word at the end. That he talks about how if you could pull back the sky and you could open it up and you could see that you'd see there's so much less than you think there is. And I always would listen to the song and sing it to myself that there's so much more than you think there is. And so I loved everything about the song except for this one word and I get to the end and go... Uh, it's like disappointing when I hear it, just that part of it. But everything else I liked about it. And I think the reason that I felt that way and the reason that it kind of fails on that level is it gets to this thing and the singer kind of lays his cards on the table. That he doesn't think that there's anything more to what we see. That there's less to it and it's simpler and there's not anything more to it. But the reason I think it fails or the reason I struggle with it obviously is, is b- being a Christian and being a believer and believing that God is real in those things. But I think it kind of fails overall as a song because overwhelmingly as people, whether you're a Christian or you're not a Christian, we believe that there's more to it than we can see. Overwhelmingly. Uh, I was looking at a poll this week from the Harris poll from a couple years ago. And they polled people on their religious beliefs and they tried to get as broad as they could to kind of put together this idea of what the world, what the whole population of the world believes. And what they came up with is that 84% of the world's population is religious, uh, adheres to some religion that has some faith 
and a higher deity or a God or something along those lines. But then they also found that the 16% that didn't have any religion, 64 of the, 64% of those people still believed in some sort of deity or God. And so I'm no math wizard, but I figured that out. That's actually 94% of the world's population believes that there's some higher power or God or deity. Right now, that lines up with what we know and kind of what they've done years that seems to make sense. And so 94 percent overwhelmingly believe that there is much more to this than we can see. Um, That doesn't surprise us because the Bible tells us that Romans one tells us clearly that God has made us in his image and that he's put his conscience in us. And the conscience that we have bears witness that there's something more. Uh, Paul will go on to say in Romans one that the creation bears witness. The glory of God's creation cries out that there's a creator or or you can go to Ecclesiastes and the author in Ecclesiastes writes that God has put eternity into our hearts. Or if we just look at the the, uh, major sweep of scripture, it tells us we're made in God's image and we're made to have a relationship with him. And that is at the very core of our being. And so it's no wonder That 94% of the population believes there's something more to this life than what we can see and we can touch. There's eternity written into our hearts. It's on our conscience. It bears witness in us the way God has made us. And so when we think about that and what that means, it means that each person you come into contact with each day, overwhelmingly the majority is they believe there's something more to this life. And I say that I start there this morning because we're going to go into Acts 17 and we're going to see Paul go into one of the great cities of the day. And he's going to walk through the city and he's going to see what's happening there. And he's going to look and he's going to come to this understanding of these people do believe there's something more. And they're worshiping all sorts of different things and they're not seeing who God is, but they are deeply looking for something more. And he's going to go into the city and he's going to proclaim the gospel in the midst of those people. And what we see as he goes into this city in Athens is it tells us he first goes into the synagogues as his, was his custom. He would go find the Jewish believers and he would show them how the scriptures point to Jesus. But then it says he goes into the marketplace. He goes into the place where they would get their news and where they would get their, their information and where people would gather together to hear those things. And he begins to proclaim the gospel there. And then they invite him to come to where all the philosophers hang out, the cultural elite the academics, and they say, we want you to come and tell us about that. And so what we're going to look at in Acts, it's really helpful for us today as as Paul does this in Athens, is he's going to speak to people that are very skeptical, people that are not sure what they believe. They're not sure where they are in all this, but they believe there's something more. And I think this is an important passage as we look at it, because the people Paul is speaking to is very much like the people that you and I meet every day. And he's going to show us some things about what it looks like to enter into that conversation with the people in the world today that are that are thinking and believing there is something more, but I'm not sure what it is or what it looks like. And so I want us to look at that passage together and think about that. And so as we do, let me just set the scene for you. We've been working our way through Acts. Acts takes us from 30 A.D. to about 63 A.D. As it stands now, we're right at about 4950, somewhere in there. Paul has made his way to Athens. If you've ever seen pictures of Athens, um, I actually had the privilege to get to go there years ago. And Athens is a great big hill in the middle of the city. And it was a fortress. 
And then on top of it is a temple and some ancient ruins you see today. But you see it everywhere you go in Athens. And right there next to it is what it talks about here, the Areopagos, where Paul goes and begins to proclaim this. And it's a giant rock formation where they gather together and hear new ideas. And then they kind of talk about it and they would critique it. It makes me think, uh, when I read this, it makes me think of being in school for architecture. And you have to present your project and then everybody just rip you apart. It was awful. So bad. You'd go and you'd be like, this is what I did and this is what I spent all my time on and here's all my ideas. And they'd say, you're dumb. That's basically what would happen most of the time. You're not very good at this. And you go, oh, thank you very much. And I'll go try it again. But that's kind of what this is like, right? They're going to go and they're going to sit around and they're going to think about ideas and people are going to present their ideas and then they're going to kind of hit back at them. And so that's what we're seeing as Paul goes into this place. And so as we look at this, as we look at what happens as Paul goes in, here's the way I want us to see it. First, I want us just to ask the question, why do this at all? I think this passage gives us some thought on that as we look at Paul. Why do this at all? And by the way, as we start to look at this, we're going to see Paul go into a very public place, stand up, begin to preach, defend these ideas, do this. That doesn't mean that that's your calling in your life, that you have to go into the public square or you're going to go speak in a big uh, place or those things. Maybe you will. Maybe God's gifted you in that way. But that doesn't mean you're called to that. Paul had a specific and unique ministry. But what I would say to you as we consider this is that we are called to make disciples, all of us. And we are called to share our faith with those people in our life. And so the things that we see Paul doing on a big scale, I think we can bring down and do on a one-on-one scale with our friends, our neighbors, our loved ones, the people that we come into contact with. And so don't hear me saying, okay, you've got to be like Paul and you've got to go to these places in this way, but you can do this in your life. And what he teaches and shows us here is very helpful for that. So the first question I want us to ask is why do it at all? Secondly, how do we do it? Do it well, like we see Paul here. And then lastly, how do we continue on in this in our life daily? Just getting up each day and continuing on in this. And so let's consider first, why do this at all? Look at verse 16 with me as we start in Acts chapter 17, verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, the them there is most likely Silas and Timothy, who he went ahead of. He's waiting for them at Athens. His spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogues with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. And so there seems to be almost a throwaway statement there at the beginning that you might just kind of gloss right over that it says Paul uh, was provoked. His spirit was provoked within him. And I want us to kind of zoom in on that for just a second. I think most of us have a pretty decent idea of uh, in the context there what that word would provoke would mean when we think about provoking uh, a motivation, uh, an incitement to move or to do something. And that's part of it, certainly what it does, because it says he's provoked in his spirit. So he goes to reason with the people in these places. It moves him to do something. And we see that. And that's certainly true. But when we really dig in and look at what it's talking about, when it says his spirit was provoked, there's something more going on there. It's that he's deeply moved and he's caring for the people that he sees around him. So much so that it's moving into action. But there's a there's kind of an emotional weight that goes with it that Paul sees. And if we're going to get to what it really means, we have to go back I think, to the Old Testament to fully get this idea. 
And we go back to passages in the Old Testament and a very similar idea is where we see God saying that he is a jealous God. Now, now as I say that, we're going to go back and we're going to talk about how God says he's jealous. People often kind of recoil at that idea. And maybe you do. And that's okay. Maybe you go, I don't like that idea. When you talk about passages in the Bible that God is jealous and he's jealous for his glory and he's jealous for his praise. And you hear those things and you go, I don't really like a God like that. And that's okay if you immediately feel that way. I think the reason we feel that way at different times that we kind of recoil and think, I don't really like that. is because we assign a human jealousy to God. We think of jealousy in the terms in which we deal with it in our own relationships. And then we ascribe that to God. And it's very unflattering. We go, oh, I don't really want to worship a God who's jealous in that way. But what the Bible tells us is that God is jealous for his own glory and his own praise. And it's born out of his love for us. He doesn't need anything from us. In fact, Paul will say that in the way he says this as he goes and he begins to preach and he begins to tell people. He says there in verse 25, he's not served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So God's not jealous out of a deficiency in himself. That's the way my jealousy works. I'm usually jealous because of insecurity in my life. Right? I want you to like me more than that person over there because I realize that I have faults and I'm falling apart and that's not good. And so I try to fill those voids in those ways. God doesn't have that. He doesn't need anything from us in and of himself because he is the giver of all things. And so God's jealousy, when it talks about that in Scripture, is born out of this idea that God wants us to see that he is the most important thing because he is the most important thing. And it would not be loving if God wasn't jealous for his own glory. Because he knows the thing that you need most in your life is a relationship with him. That you have eternity put into your heart that you were made that way and only God can fill that void. And so because God is loving, because he cares for us, because he's merciful, because he wants our best, he's jealous for his own glory. And he says, you need to make me the center of all things. And that's an important distinction for us to get at instead of making it the jealousy as humans that we feel in the way that that is not often a good thing. Often it's very the opposite of the way God's jealousy works. But what you see here in the connection to with what Paul is feeling and seeing as he walks through the city, it says his spirit was provoked within him. He's jealous for God's glory in a good way. He sees what the people of the city of Athens are worshiping. He sees their idols. He sees them all around him and his spirit is provoked because he recognizes that they are seeking to fill this void in their life. This eternity that has been placed in the human hearts of all people. And he sees them trying to fill it with other things and he's provoked. He knows that God is the only answer to all of our deepest needs. He knows that what Jesus has done for us, 
that he's come and he's provided a way that we can enter into this relationship that at our most core of our being we were made for. And he's here extending that offer that you can come and have that relationship. And he walks into the city and he sees these people not knowing this. And he's overwhelmed. His spirit is provoked within him. Oh, that they would know that these idols will never satisfy what they're looking for. And he goes in, and that's what we see as Paul goes. And when we begin to talk about the motivation that comes with that, that he sees that they're seeking it in other things that they can only ever be found in Jesus. And we do this too. Our world does the same thing. Each day we get up and we look for security and purpose and love and meaning We do all these things to try to bring those things in our life. And we put too much weight on things that can never give us that. And we do it over and over again. We talked about this last week briefly. That's what the idea of idolatry is. Paul was seeing some very literal idols that they were worshiping. And false gods and little uh, images and all these things. But we do the same thing. We just do it a little more sophisticated today. We believe that our identity will come from the job we do. We believe that ultimate joy will be the house that we live in. We believe that everything will be great if my kids are just good. And we put our hope in other things that ultimately cannot satisfy us. And Paul walks into the city and he sees everyone around him doing that. And he's provoked in his spirit. And he recognizes that these things will never bring complete meaning in the lives of the people that he's watching. And I want you to understand something that as you grow in your relationship with God and what he's done for you in Jesus. The more you see Jesus for who he is, the more your spirit is provoked for those that don't know Jesus. The more that you know how he meets your deepest needs, the more that you see people trying to fill it with other things. And it is so hard to watch. And that's what Paul sees here. I sat the other day in Panera and wrote this sermon and I wept as I watched people around me. I'm sure they were like, who is that crazy guy over there crying in the corner? (laughs) I was thinking, how many people here don't know Jesus? How many people are seeking to fill the void in their life with whatever it may be? And that's what Paul was seeing as he walked into the city. And it provoked him to the place of, I'm going to go not just to the synagogue, but I'm going to go in the marketplace and I'm going to begin to proclaim who Jesus is and what he's done and what it means for you. And as he does, God begins to move. And these guys, the most uh, uh, elite academics of the day, they come and they say, we hear what you're talking about. We'd like you to come to the Areopagos, the city center where all the philosophers and the academics get together and they say, we want to hear your ideas. And so he goes. And so we see, we start to see how Paul addresses them. And this is where I want us to think about how do we do this? The reason why is we know that Jesus is the only thing that can meet us, meet our ultimate needs. 
that he is the most important thing. But then Paul gives us a very helpful way to actually begin to do this. And so look at what happens as he goes and he meets with these men. Verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagos, said, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are religious. For I passed along and I observed the objects of your worship. I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, I proclaim to you. And so I want you just to stop there for a second. Paul goes into this place and he starts with this inscription and he starts with the beliefs that they have and where they are. And he kind of meets them on their own territory. He says, I know you believe these things because I see them in your inscriptions and the altars you have and the things you're worshiping. It's kind of like Paul had access to the Harris pole I was talking about. I see that you believe in some God, even though you're not sure what it is. And even though you're skeptical, even though you're maybe what we call today agnostics. Right? He, he's talking to the Epicureans and the Stoics. They believed in a spirit They believed that maybe there was a deity, but nothing really beyond that. And he says, I know you believe that. I know that you hold those beliefs. So now I'm going to tell you about who that is that you're believing in, even though you don't know. And so he meets them where they are and he begins to speak in to to their deep convictions that they have that they don't know what to do with. And he kind of meets them on their ground. And when you think about what does that look like for us to do the same thing today? And I think part of it is you meet people where they are and you listen well and you hear their convictions. And you listen to their hearts and you see the things that are pointing to God. Every person you meet, God has given a measure of grace in their life, what we call common grace. Their conscience bears witness. They're made in God's image. There's things that every person you will meet that will say, this is really bad. Or this is really good or this is not right. And you listen and you hear those things and you say, yes, you're right. That's not good. There was a big story this week that broke. I don't know if you read the thing about the Hollywood uh, guy that's made movies forever. And it's come out that he sexually assaulted woman after woman after woman to give them parts in his films. And everybody's this is awful. And there's an uproar and there should be. You read the way this man was uh, conducting himself and what he was doing, and it's disgusting. And it's awful. And it's horrible. And as believers, we should say, yes, that is terrible. And that is not what God desires, and that's not the way we're called to love one another. And that is wrong. But here's the thing. Oftentimes, people in our society today will be up in arms and angry, but they don't have a good reason why they're angry. Or we say things and we go, yeah, that's wrong and I want to be angry about it and I want to do something about it. But nobody stops to think about what it is, the belief that upholds why I'm so upset by this. And we have an opportunity as believers to come in and show them deeper reasons as to why they're actually upset. To kind of point to that conviction you have is right and it's good and it's because all people are made in God's image. God has created us to be interconnected in relationships with one another, to love each other, to love God, to show what he's like in those relationships. And when things are grossly out of step with that, there's something wrong and we know it. 
The truth is what that guy was doing is awful. And it is if you remove God from the whole uh, of the story. And you believe in survival of the fittest and the strong eat the weak. The ones that have more power get to go ahead. It's exactly what that guy was doing. But yet we know that that's wrong. We know it's not right. And so we have an opportunity to speak the truth into those things and meet people where they are. And we should do it with great humility because we're recognizing that you don't have to be a Christian. You don't have to understand all the Bible that on your conscience is written certain things because all people are made in God's image. And so we have an opportunity in those moments to step in and say so. I was reading an article just recently about Dr. Martin Luther King. That that's exactly what he did in the civil rights movement. It's interesting today that people love Martin Luther King. For good reason. We hold them up as look at what he did. But what they like to forget is his whole of his argument was built on the Imago Dei, the image of God in all people. The reason that it resonated is because he was aligning with the truth of who we are and the way we're made. In the image of our creator. And that's what he did. He went into churches in the south and he pleaded with people and he said, you can't do this on these grounds because God's created all people. And he brought a depth to his reasoning that they didn't have before or they weren't recognizing. And it made great changes and it began to show who God is and what that looks like. And so the same is true. We have that opportunity to do the same thing in our culture. And so we have an opportunity to step in and affirm the things that people in our culture rightly see, even if they have the wrong reasons. But that's a good thing. And we can find common ground in that. And that's what Paul does. And that's how he starts. He says, I perceive that you're religious and I see this in your culture and you believe these things and you hold to these things. And notice that he even gets to a point there in uh, verse 28 where he says, even some of your poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. And he quotes literature and he quotes poems and he uses things of the culture to point to who God is. And so he meets them kind of on their ground. And he begins to walk through. And so I would say to you, we have opportunities to do that every day. To listen to people, to hear the convictions they have. To listen deeply and then point them more fully to who God is and why they have those convictions. And that takes me to the second part. Not only do we need to be listening and hearing those, but then we need to be able to step in and challenge them. Look at how Paul does that. He does that very thing here. He tells them that they're worshiping this unknown God. And he says, I'm proclaiming to you who that is. It's God. And then look at verse 29. And he says, being then God's offsprings, we ought not to think that divine being is like gold or silver or stone or image formed by by the art and imagination of men. So hear what he's saying. We're not over God. God is over us. God doesn't answer to us. We answer to God. That's what he's saying. He created us. We didn't create him. And then he says the times of ignorance God has overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he's fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he's appointed. And of this, he will give assurance to all by raising him from the dead. And so he points you to Jesus. And he says, God has come. 
and we are all uh, stand in judgment under him. We all owe everything that we are to him and we've ignored him. And it's not that we made him. He made us. And so we answer to him. But he says he sent Jesus. And now you can have a relationship with him through what Christ has done. And so I want you to notice the way he does this. Now, this is all kind of compacted into one short thing. This would be played out over a much longer timeline, I think, in our relationships and our friendships. But know what he does. He meets them where they are. He's listened to his culture. He's seen the things around them. He addresses those things. He points to how God is the foundation of those. And then he calls them to repentance. He challenges them. He speaks the truth. In love, he's doing exactly what Jesus did perfectly everywhere he went. He would address the sin. He would bring out the heart issue at play. And then he would say, repent. Follow me. We were just reading uh, in prayer breakfast last week, John four, the woman at the well. And he enters into this conversation with someone that he shouldn't be culturally talking to. And he spends time with her and he listens to her and he reveals her heart. And then he says, I'm the one that can satisfy your deepest need. And Paul's doing the same thing as he walks them through and then he challenges them. And so there's a fine line there if we're going to do that in our culture. A friend of mine has uh, uh, kind of put it in these terms to me. It helps me to think of it this way. We have to balance invitation and challenge in our relationships. Inviting people in, listening well to them, walking with them, understanding their beliefs and where they came from and why and what upholds those. But as we do that and we grow in relationships, we have to be able to step in and challenge. And go, yeah, but there's a much deeper meaning than that. There's more to this than you're seeing. There's so much more to this than you think. I had a conversation with my neighbor a little while back, and she was explaining to me that she wanted to go and work in a soup kitchen. She's like, I want to take my kids, and I want them to see that, and I want to give back, and I want to serve people. I think that'd be a good thing to do. And I was like, yes, that's awesome. You should do that. You should take your kids and you should go and you should do that. And you should show them to love other people and to show them. And she was going, yeah, that's great. And I said, why do you want to do that? And she thought about it a minute. She said, well, I think it'd make me feel good. And I went, yeah, I think you're right. So do you ever think about why it would make you feel good? Just kind of like, oh, you know, just good to help other people. And so I said, but if it's just to make you feel good, isn't that kind of selfish? Now, I had a good friendship with this lady for a long time, over many years. And she went, whoa, I hadn't thought about it like that. I said, if you're just serving other people just to make you feel good, then it's ultimately about you. And she went, I don't know. And so from there, we went into why we want to serve other people. And that they are made in God's image. And we were made that way. And that God does love us and he wants to show us. And I could share all those things about who Jesus is and what it means and why it gives us much deeper meanings that aren't about us, but about glorifying God. And she was like, oh, I hadn't thought of that. Now, she didn't become a Christian. She's still not a believer. We're still having those conversations. But it gave me the opportunity to step in and say, there's something far deeper going on here. You're right. You do want to serve people. And it would make you feel good. And it would be great to show your kids this. And there's all these wonderful things that we could be doing. But let's consider why we're doing it. 
And so the invitation of our friendship and listening to her and hearing those things led to a place where I could really challenge her on why she was wanting to do those things. And so we balance that. We see Paul doing that, meeting them where they are and then balancing that and then really challenging and saying, but God, we are accountable to God, not the other way around. And it is only through Jesus that we can ever have this relationship. And so what we see Paul doing here, we can begin to do in our own lives by listening to people and walking with them. And the the conviction comes from understanding who Jesus is and what that means. So how do we do this day in and day out? How do you get up and continue to do this? Because there's a couple things that immediately come to mind. And if we get off on one side or the other, it causes all sorts of problems. One is, as we think about how we get into doing this, we can be gung-ho, and I'm going to challenge everybody I meet. Right? We swing to one side. Every person I hear say anything, I'm going to tell them how they're wrong, and it's all about Jesus, and it's all about God and what He's done, and they've got, and we can jump into it that way, and we become real overbearing real quick, and people go, oh no, here comes that guy again. He's about to just hammer me with how it's all about God. And so the, the balance is in the gospel. I am desperately sinful and wicked in and of myself, and I desperately need Jesus every day of my life. And I need the humility and the balance of that. I'm not going out to prove people they're wrong or to tell them whatever, but I'm, I have to operate in my spirit being provoked that I know Jesus meets all of my needs and I'd be desperately lost without him. And in doing so, that produces a humility as I go and I begin to talk to other people. Uh, Rich Mullins, if you know who he was, is a Christian singer that died years ago. He used to say, as a Christian, I am just one beggar showing another beggar where to find a morsel of food. And that's the humility that comes with instead of I'm going to go and hammer people with this. It's like I have to operate in that humility. And it's printed in our bulletins every week in the, the, the prayers for coming to take communion. I'm, I'm more sinful than I ever dared imagined, but I'm more loved and accepted than I ever dared hope. And that's the other side of it, right? We have the humility that I desperately need Jesus, but then the other side is I'm more accepted and loved than I ever dared hope, so I don't have to be afraid when I challenge someone, right? The two sides of that are go, man, I go to this humility and I'm a, I'm a sinner that needs Jesus. And then I go, who am I to ever challenge anyone? The answer is, it's not about me. I'm no one. But Jesus is worth it to challenge other people. That it's all him. And when I'm resting, that I'm more loved than I ever imagined. And I'm completely accepted because I, who I am in Christ, it frees me to, to challenge people in that way. And to seek to do it in that right balance of humility invitation and challenge and in all things. And then the last thing I would say to you is how we continue to do it. Look at what happens at the very end of this. Verse 32. Now, when they had heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Just going to be honest with you, when you challenge someone and you tell them it's really about God and what Jesus has done, some are going to mock you. Some are going to go, that's ridiculous. Can't believe you believe that. Okay, thanks. And by the way, when they do, Go, okay, see you tomorrow. We'll pick this up tomorrow. You continue to love them and be gracious and listen and hear their reasons why. 
But then look at what it says. But others said, we will hear you again about this. Eh, I'm not sure, but I'll continue to talk to you about it. And so Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed. God honors that he calls us to go make disciples of all nations. Your job is you can't convince anyone ultimately. We have to rest and that's God's work to do that, but we get to be part of it. And it's a process. So if you go out tomorrow and you start to listen and you challenge someone or you walk into that and you point them to Jesus and they laugh at you, you go, okay, that's part of it. And some will go, we'll hear you again on this. Okay, I'm not convinced. That's what my neighbor said. She went, oh, okay, I see. I see what you did there. You made it about Jesus. I'm not really sure about that. Well, okay, well, we'll talk about it again. But then sometimes God chooses to use you and he opens people's eyes right in front of you. And they go, yes. And the spirit that is provoked within you rejoices. Yeah. Your deepest need is Jesus and what he's done for you. And it's our great privilege that God even allows us to be part of that. So let's pray. God, we thank you that you've done everything that we could never do for us. We thank you that despite being more sinful than we ever can even fathom, that you love us infinitely. That infinite cost to yourself, that you've drawn us to you, that you do love us and accept us, and it's completely and totally because of Jesus. And all we can say is thank you. I pray that you would ignite in each one of us a deep desire to share the love of Christ with those around us. That we'd look for opportunities. That you'd give us the right balance of humility and love and grace and kindness with how to challenge, how to call people to repentance. I pray that as believers that we would have the freedom in you to do that with one another. To call each other to deeper and deeper intimacy with you. A deeper uh, just clinging to you in all things. And we pray that you would be glorified as that happens. That we would grow in our relationship with you and with one another and you would be glorified. We thank you. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.